Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Amen. I just love that song, that song that speaks about God who goes to such incredible lengths to pursue you, to pursue us. Um, it just, just gets me every time. Such a good song. Hey, my name is Mark Lilly. I serve as a senior pastor at our Forestdale campus. And it's really good to be here with you this morning. It's been maybe a couple of months since I've been across here. And it was great to catch up with uh, a number of you before the service and say good day and to see some faces that I haven't seen for a little while. Our theme for this year is uh, growing deeper. And uh, w- one of the things, one of the ways that we grow deeper is to read scripture, to understand scripture, to apply scripture in our lives. So that, that's why we're doing this, this four-week series on, on reading scripture, because we are convinced, we are convinced, scripture tells us that when we dig deep into God's word, it helps us to grow deeper, it helps us to grow in our faith journeys. Uh, last week, Jules spoke about slow reading of scripture and meditating on scripture. If you, if you missed that, can I encourage you to jump online, check out the podcast, because there's some really practical and helpful insights um, in Jules' message from last week. And I think his slides are still available online, so I encourage you to, to check that out. Today we are talking about how to read narrative, how to read narrative but just, we, just before we get into this, I want to recommend a couple of resources to you because um, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, I've got to leave a lot of stuff out of this. Um, so you, you maybe have to gonna do, do it, maybe you'll have to do a little bit further reading if you want um, a few more principles. But this, this little book here, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, um, it's actually changed now. This is an older edition. Uh, this is the second edition, but it's written by uh, a New Testament and an Old Testament scholar, and they go through um, the entire Bible and they they unpack um, principles that are specific to reading particular types of of literature in the Bible. One of them being narrative. So this is a great little tool. If you want to dig into this a little bit more deeply, can I encourage you to check that book out? How to read the Bible for all it's worth, by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Another really, really helpful resource for you is uh, the Bible Project uh, website. Those guys have a whole bunch of incredibly helpful videos, and they're really creative, they're engaging, and again, they have a series of videos on how to read narrative, and they have really cool little introductory videos to each book of the Bible that are helpful, because they, th- those videos help to, help to sort of um, set the whole landscape before you launch in to the, to the detail. So if you want to look at this topic a bit more deeply, check out How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth and the Bible Project um, uh, website. Okay, let's launch into this. Large portions of the Old Testament are actually made up of narrative in whole or, or portions of, of the, the book is narrative in genre. So Genesis and Exodus, um, uh, we get to the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Judges, and others. Um, and then in the New Testament, the Gospels consist of large chunks of narrative, and as is the Book of Acts, large chunk of narrative. In fact, most of the Book of Acts is narrative. In fact, the the genre of narrative makes up over forty percent of the Bible. So it's the it's the single most um, 
it's the single largest genre in the entire Bible, single genre being type of literature in the entire Bible. So it's really helpful for us as we approach reading narrative in the Bible to have a couple of tools, to have a couple of tools. So that's, that's the idea of today. Just, just wanting to give you a few more things for your toolbox so that as you read biblical narrative, you'll be able to interpret it, you'll be able to apply it in your own lives. What are biblical narratives? They're basically stories. Biblical narratives are basically stories. But the unique purpose of biblical narrative is to show how God is at work in his created order. And they paint this amazing picture of God's divine providence, of a God who directs providentially history itself. And, and, it, and, and they, they help us to, to learn how we should live in this world, in relationship with this God who has created this universe for us to inhabit, for us to rule over, and how we can live in relationship with other people as well. So it's incredibly practical as we jump into narrative. The great thing about narrative is, is it's actually a universal, incredibly powerful, and it's also a really emotive way that God communicates with us. People from all different cultures, from all around the world, love a good story. Who loves a good story? I'm guessing there's probably more people that love a good story than just half a dozen of you. But we all love a good story because all of us can relate to stories. I'm sure most of us had moments when we were children, when we were growing up, perhaps some of us still, um, still get an adrenaline rush when we watch a good action movie or something. But, but when we were kids, how many of us read books or, or watched movies and they kind of captured our attention? There were these... There were these heroic actors, uh, characters, and, and we'd, we'd watch this movie or we'd read this book and then, and then we'd run out and we'd, we'd enact, we'd imagine ourselves in the storyline. We, we pretended that we ourselves were the Superman hero or whatever it was, the Wonder Woman hero. So narrative is, is an incredibly engaging way for God to communicate with us. And we're naturally drawn into the storyline that God paints for us. So biblical narratives, just like any other story that we might read, have plots. So they're arranged into patterns of conflict and resolution of conflict. And they have really exciting and suspenseful storylines that again capture our attention. And biblical narrative is made up of a whole range of different characters. So these characters can be divine. So we read about somebody called God. He kind of pops up fairly regularly as we read through biblical narrative. We read about the Father. We read about Jesus. We read about the Holy Spirit. We read about hundreds and hundreds of different people who are also characters in these narrative portions of Scripture that we read. Even animals get a Guernsey. Who remembers the talking donkey? So there's an animal. There's, there's um, vegetables and plants. So we read about fig trees and we read about grapevines and and. Those are used as characters because they evocatively and powerfully portray particular aspects that God's trying to make to his people about the need to be fruitful or about a grapevine being cast into a furnace and burnt. So, so biblical narrative consists of characters. And they also include a setting. Every, every biblical narrative includes a setting. These stories happen somewhere a place, a time in history, and so they all have a setting. And the biblical authors, they've arranged them into storylines, and they've put them into the, into the self-enclosed books that we have in the Bible. 
Biblical narratives are also really multi-layered. I'll just unpack quickly three, three different layers. So we have the main plot, and then we have a subplot, and then we have a sub-subplot. I'm sure that's not the correct terminology, but let's go with the, the, overarching, um, the overarching plot, the plot and the sub, subplot. So the overarching top-level plot kind of tells us about God's universal story, his universal plan for his created order. So it talks about creation. It talks about the fall and sin. It talks about the fact that God loves this created order. We've just sung a song about God pursuing us because he loves us. So he put a redemption plan in place. And and we read about how he sends his son ultimately to die on a cross for us. But the story doesn't stop with the death of Jesus. His son is resurrected and he starts to reconcile this universe to himself. This is the main overarching plot. This is the story of redemption. And then there's the middle level plot. And it focuses on some really large themes. So in the Old Testament, we we read a lot about the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, we read lots about the church. So there's this kind of big chunks of narrative that address those particular things. So in the Old Testament, we read about Abraham. We read about Israel being enslaved in Egypt. We read about them growing into this nation. We read about God delivering them from Egypt and how they come into this land that's called the promised land. And this nation continues to grow and flourish. And so the story, the narrative about Israel continues on. And get into the New Testament, it talks about the kingdom of God was one of the big themes. And the church, the church is born and the church grows. So, so we have this mid-level plot. And then there's the bottom plot, the bottom level plot. And here we read about literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different individuals who make up lots of other smaller stories. We read about Abraham and Moses and David. We read about Solomon and we read about... Jesus, we read about Paul and Peter and James and John. We read about all of these different stories about these unique individuals. And we get drawn into their stories. Their stories capture our emotions, they capture our minds. We find ourselves being wrapped into these stories because we, we celebrate the successes and we mourn with the, with the failures that people have in these stories. We're drawn in to this storyline because we can identify with and we find ourselves falling in love with some of these biblical characters because they're humans just like us and we can identify with these stories. Every one of these stories forms a a, a part of the mid-layer narrative. So they fall into Israel or the church and each one of those little stories finds its place in the bigger overarching plot in God's redemption history. All of these narratives, whether it's the, whether it's the sub-subplot, the plot, or the overarching plot, first and foremost, they're all stories about what God has done in the lives of people and through the lives of people. So God's always the hero of the story. God is the main actor in each and every one of those narratives because he's the one who's at work in people's lives. He's the one that's at work through the lives of ordinary people just like us. So the, the, the overarching narrative, it's, it's about God's story. With that little bit of background that hopefully helps to orient you just a little bit, let's move into some, what I hope you find are some practical pointers that will hopefully help you as you 
go on this journey of reading, of interpreting, of applying narrative in your life. So the first pointer is this. The first pointer is the context matters. Context matters. Now, context always matters, and it doesn't just matter for the purpose of us interpreting biblical narrative. If I came up to you after the service and I said to you the phrase, we had a ball, we had a ball, and then I walked out the door because I'm in a rush to get to Forestdale. What would you derive from that? What, what meaning would you take from that? How would you understand that phrase, we had a ball? We had a ball. If you knew that my family and I had, uh, during the school holidays, spent a couple of weeks up in Coral Bay, you might be thinking I was making a statement that we had a ball. We had a great time on that holiday. If, you, have you, if you'd seen me outside kicking a footy before the service, which I wasn't, but if you'd seen me kicking a footy outside before the service with a few of the guys and girls, you might take from that statement the fact that I have a football in my possession. We have a ball. Or if you'd known that last night I went to, I went to a, um, a fundraising ball. Again, I didn't go to a fundraising ball last night. But if you knew that I went to a fundraising ball last night, the meaning would be different again. In each of those different situations, in each of those scenarios, you having some context helps you to understand what it is that I am trying to communicate to you. In each of those little scenarios, really simple scenarios, you can see that the meanings are really very, very different. And when we read the Bible, we, we often take small sound bites, like four words, or we take a verse here or a verse there, without kind of having some regard to the overall context. So context helps us to determine and to derive meaning from the text that we have in front of us, from Scripture. It helps us to understand to correctly understand biblical narrative. Let me give you a, a quick example. There's a story in the book of Judges, and I'm sure most of us are familiar with this story, where Gideon tries to discern God's will as to whether or not he should go into battle. And so Gideon puts out a fleece, and, and, and that functions as a sign as to whether or not he should go into battle. When we put this fleece story into a bit of a broader context, I think that there's perhaps a slightly different way of understanding what was actually happening in that fleece part of the story. Because as we read the broader context in Judges 6 to 8, um, let me just read from uh, six, chapter 6, verse 16 for you, just, just at the start of this story of Gideon. God appears to Gideon. Well, an angel of, God, an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And he has this conversation. And so we're just picking up this conversation the angel of the Lord is having with Gideon. And he says to Gideon, I will, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. That sounds like a pretty, a pretty simple deal. Uh, when you look at the size of some of the armies that they came up against in the Old Testament, God will be with Gideon to the extent that it will be like him fighting against one man. Instead of Gideon kind of just rushing off and doing what God had told him to, Gideon asks for a sign at that point. He rushes home, he prepares a goat, he makes some, some soup, and he comes back 
and the angel of the Lord tells him, put it on the rock. On, on, he puts it on this, on this rock, which is like an altar. And, and the, the angel of the Lord touches the, the offering with a staff and this fire kind of just comes out of the rock and totally consumes the offering. That's a pretty good sign, I would have thought. This fire just comes out and totally consumes this offering. At that point, the angel of the Lord tells Gideon, Gideon, your dad has, an, has erected an altar to the God of Baal. I want you to go and tear that down. So Gideon's just seen this sign. You'd think he'd be raring to go, but he doesn't. He doesn't run out at that point. He actually does what the angel of the Lord has asked him to do, but he does it at night time because he's scared. He's fearful. Perhaps he's got some doubts as to whether or not this is the right thing to do. He's perhaps scared of some of the opposition that he might face in doing that. Perhaps it starts to emerge that Gideon has, has a challenge here in trusting God and he's struggling with his own fears. Perfectly natural, I would have thought. But when it's time for Gideon to go to war, he's still uncertain and he's still struggling to trust God. So this is where we pick up the fleece story. So Gideon says to God, God, I need another sign. He puts a woolen fleece on the ground and he says to God, even in the morning, the fleece is wet with dew and the ground around it is dry. I'll know it's from you and I'm going to be good to go against those Midianites. He gets up in the morning and God's made it happen. But, but Gideon's still struggling. Gideon's still struggling with, God, is this really you? So he asks God for a third sign. He puts another fleece out. And this time he says, if the fleece is dry and the ground around it is wet, God, I will know it's from you. And then I'll definitely be good to go and fight these Midianites. I just need to confirm one more time that this is you and, this is, and that this is your will for me. Again, God does it. But the thing is, there was actually no ambiguity in, in what God told Gideon in the first instance. Gideon, I will be with you. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon eventually kind of gets this. He goes out and he musters the biggest army he can. We're told he gets 32,000 soldiers. So at that point, I'm ready to trust God. I've got an army of 32,000 ready to go. God says, Gideon, no. And God goes through this process of getting him to reduce the size of his army to face the Midianites. He gets down to 300, 300 men. This is now this is now a journey of faith. This is now a journey of trust for Gideon. He's now in a place where, God, I've got to rely on you to help us defeat the Midianites. So just looking back at the fleece story, I guess a lot of us sort of, we put our fleece out to determine whether or not this is God's will. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but I think I'm not sure that we can derive that from this story. I'm not sure that looking at this within the broader context of Gideon's journey, that that's what's happening here. The context actually shows us that it's probably something a little bit different to that. It's actually about God using ordinary people, people who struggle to trust God, people who have doubts when God asks them to do really big and really scary things, people who struggle with fears and inadequacies, it's a story about God taking an ordinary person and helping them 
to journey through their fear, to journey through their doubt, to journey through their worry and achieve something that's quite extraordinary because God is empowering them. When we look at it in that overall context, I feel that it's a much deeper story. It's a much more compelling story. And I think it also gives us a slightly different way of looking at what it means to put out a fleece. So this type of context I'm talking about here is textual context. Words are found in sentences and sentences exist in paragraphs and paragraphs make up chapters and chapters make up books. So what I'm saying here is gain something of an appreciation for the forest before you get too focused on the tree or on the branches or on the leaf. Read something a little bit more broadly. Perhaps read some of the surrounding chapters or even the book before determining what the verse or what the phrase that consists of four words actually means. So that's textual context. Another type of context that's helpful when interpreting narratives is literary context. Now, the Bible's no different to any other type of literature in the sense that it consists of different types of literature, as we've, as we've said. And different types of literature require different interpretive approaches. So, for example, if you picked up a book that you knew to be fiction, you would read that book in a different way than you would a book that you knew to be non-fiction. If you read a biography or a poem or the newspaper or an email that a work colleague has just sent you, you read, you approach, you interpret each of those slightly differently. So, too, when you read a passage from the book of Proverbs, you understand that this is wisdom literature, this is poetry And you approach that differently to reading 1 and 2 Kings, which is historical narrative. And we treat those differently. So, for example, we know that the phrase from the psalm, I didn't write the reference in here. It's in Psalms. Uh, This phrase uh, from Psalms, um, you'll just have to trust me on this one. But one of the psalmists says that the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. We know that when we read that, it's it's poetry. The psalmist is trying to paint this picture that will engage our senses in, in a slightly different way. We know it's not literal. None of us at that point starts to think about hills kind of jumping through the countryside. We understand that. Why? Because we know that we're reading poetry. But when we read in the book of Acts, which is historical narrative, when we read in the book of Acts, the miraculous signs that the disciples did and some of the amazing stories that we read about in the book of Acts, we take those literally. We take those literally. Because the book of Acts is historical narrative and it's describing what's actually happened. So we approach that in a different way than we would reading a poem. So that's literary context. The final type of context is the historical context. Now, a challenge that all of us have as 21st century Christians is that um, when we read biblical narrative, um, understanding what the historical context at the time can be a challenge for us. Each biblical narrative was written in a specific historical context, and it sought to address issues that specific groups of people were reading at the time, issues that they faced at the time. And 
The Bible conveys ideas in different languages. Most of the Bible is written in Hebrew or Greek or in parts in Aramaic. It, it, it's written in different languages. It's written from a Jewish worldview, a Jewish worldview, not a 21st century Western worldview. The contexts are ancient, ancient. The superpowers were very different. The superpowers were not Russia and the United States. The superpowers were Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. They thought that the world was still flat. This is a very different world to the world that we find ourselves in today, in the 21st century. Biblical narratives were not trying to address the issues that we're facing here today as if they were written to us in the 21st century. They might be addressing the same types of issues, but they're written into a different worldview, into a different context. And we need to understand that when we read narrative. So trying for us to try and get a handle on what the Jewish historical context was at the time can be really helpful. Lots of us have study Bibles and some of those little articles that we have in our study Bibles can be really helpful because it just helps you to, to start to paint something of a picture of a world that looks very different, vastly different to the one that we live in now. Consider the topic of circumcision. Within a 21st century worldview, circumcision doesn't really carry a whole lot of significance. In fact, I don't know if it's still practiced. We had two girls, not boys. Um, so I don't know if it's still done. Uh, I know that they do it for some people for medical reasons, but it has a very different context in our 21st century world. But you go back to the Old Testament. It was incredibly significant for Jewish people. Every Jewish person understood they knew what the, what the, uh, the significance of circumcision was within that worldview. That was the way that you belonged to this covenant people of God. That was the sign that I now belong to this covenant people of God, this covenant people of Israel, God's special chosen people. This is the thing that makes me a part of that. If we don't have an understanding of that, when we say again, read the book of Acts in the New Testament, if we don't have that background, that understanding of circumcision, we'll fail to understand why the Jews in the early church had such a difficult time in reconciling this whole idea of being um, saved by grace through faith. How does that fit with circumcision? This thing that's been a part of us for centuries and centuries, how does that fit if we don't have an understanding of what the significance of circumcision was for Jews? We'll faint, fail to understand what was actually happening in the early church. And as you read Paul's letters, he addresses this, this in more detail. Another challenge for us as 21st century readers is that we need to resist our urge to read our contemporary ideas back into what's happening in these biblical narratives. When we read biblical narratives, approach it with the knowledge that we're actually seeing it through a 21st century set of lenses. We're seeing it through our own 21st set of lenses. And every one of us here has had different life experiences. Our lenses will all look a little bit different and those lenses will be shaped and influenced by where you were born, your culture, your language, your, your own personal story, your own background. So when you approach scripture, try and have an awareness at the very least, at the very least, try and have something of an awareness that, hey, I'm, I might not be seeing this 
exactly right because of my lenses that I wear. Maybe bounce some ideas off some other people, but at least having that awareness that we are seeing it from a different perspective. The second pointer is this. This is a simple one. Read, read, read. Given the importance of context, we need to read. It's necessary, I think, for us to read reasonable-sized chunks of Scripture. And this can be a challenge because I think many of us are kind of used to living on a diet of um, sound bites, kind of tweets of Scripture passages that, you know, I've got a, uh, an app, the version app. I'm sure a lot of you have got that. And you get on your daily feed a, uh, a Scripture for the day. Or perhaps you have a, a devotional book and a lot of devotional books will have one or two verses. There'll be a practical reflection, maybe a scripture for the day. And these are really good things. I use these things myself. These are helpful and these things will help us to grow. But I think it's necessary for us to get an appreciation of the big picture, to read a little bit more broadly than just a verse a day, than just a verse a day. Because if that's all we do, we don't get to see God's big beautiful story, that story that that draws us in, that story that compels us, that story that directs us, that story that gives us meaning. And and we don't have a same appreciation for the the sound bites that we are reading because we're not perhaps fully engaged in the overall context. We don't get the richness and the depth of meaning that we perhaps otherwise would. I was reading an article by uh, this New Testament scholar and he runs courses for new college students on how to read the Bible. And he talks about how many of us actually fall into a trap of reading probably 90% of our time, reading books about the Bible or reading commentaries and other, other Bible sort of tools, and maybe 10% reading the Bible itself. And with this in mind, he goes on to say this, I therefore tell my students who are doing this course, I therefore tell my students only partly in jest that the three most important rules for interpreting the Bible are, one, read it, two, Read it again. Three, read it again. This is really good advice. If you're like me, uh, I struggle. I'm a slow reader. I'm a slow reader. I find myself having to go back and reread things. I'll fall asleep. It's a great way for me to get to sleep uh, reading anything. I'm just a slow reader. And, um, or, or, or if you're not motivated to read, as some people are, this can be a bit of a struggle. But at some point, we have to sit ourselves down in a chair, perhaps just like that one over there, um, and, and read. All of the very best hermeneutical principles that we speak about during the course of this series will be of absolutely no use to you if you don't sit down and read scripture. If it's something you struggle with, get, get an audio book. Perhaps sit down with somebody else and read scripture with somebody else. That might help you to stay engaged in the process. But simply start by doing something. Let me just share a, a quick story from my previous uh, work life in an engineering company, a mining engineering company. I wasn't an engineer, I was just one of the lawyers that tried to keep our engineers from sending the company broke and getting us in trouble. But some of our clients who uh, were small startup companies, um, see with, with mining facilities you can have really basic ones like the, the Hyundai Santa Fe version. I drive a Hyundai, so I don't hopefully insult anybody. You can have the cheap kind of Hyundai Santa Fe, or you can have a Porsche. Okay, and these small startup companies, they couldn't afford the Porsche version. The thing with minerals is the better the, the better the facility, the more minerals you will extract, the more gold or copper or whatever the mineral is you'll extract from that ore body. So these small startup companies that, that, that came along from time to time 
we would develop really basic processes for them. The process would help them to start making a dollar. And when they were better placed, when they had more money, they could upgrade the facility. And that upgraded facility gave them the capacity to extract more minerals from the ore body. In fact, we did some projects where the entire tailings dam, which was all the waste that had been dumped, it was all of the, all the rubbish and waste that, that was left over, dumped into a big dam. The problem was in some of those cases that there was so much value sitting in all of that waste that had been dumped into a dam. We did projects for some clients where they mined the dam. They basically sent a dredge through the dam and they, they, they because they could afford a better process, they could afford the Porsche. So they would basically just mine all the waste and the slurry that sat in this tailings dam. I think this actually um, can be a little bit like reading scripture. Start digging. If your process is a little bit rough and ready, a little bit rudimentary, just start digging, start processing. Start processing, do something. You will get something out of it. The stuff that you dig up, you will get something out of the process. And as you refine your process, this is, remember, a lifelong journey. But you need to get your shovel and your pick out and start doing something. I'm guessing every single one of us has a Bible in our own language and we can read. So that puts us in a far better position than many, many millions of people who either don't have the scriptures in their own language or they can't read because they're illiterate. Nobody's taught them how to read. I'm guessing most of us, most of us are in a position where we can start digging. Start with the Hyundai Santa Fe version and work your way up to a Porsche, but start doing something. You can go back later and reprocess stuff that you've read previously and, get, and, and extract more minerals, more gold nuggets will fall out as your process becomes more refined. The third pointer, this is a really important one. If you're falling asleep at this point, I want you to make sure you get this point. The third pointer is to allow the spirit to direct the process. And this applies no matter what type of literature you're reading in the Bible. Allow the spirit to direct the process. Pray regularly that God's spirit will help you in this process, in interpreting the scriptures. Even the psalmist in Psalm 119 said this. He prayed for help in understanding God's word. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. Open my eyes. If the psalmist had to pray that prayer, most of us should be too praying that prayer. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. This whole process of us reading, interpreting, implying scripture, it's a spiritual process. It's a spiritual guided process. Sorry, a spirit guided process. So regular prayer, inviting the Holy Spirit to help you, the, inviting the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to open your heart as you engage in this process. It has to be a part of the process. I know that in my own life, when, when I've been preparing sermons or when I've been doing a Bible study, those times that I have spent just as much time praying as I have reading and studying and trying to get my head around what the heck this means, when there has been a balance between prayer and inviting the Spirit into that process and me just reading, an extra richness comes, an extra depth comes. 
And, and there are far more significant God encounters that happen when that's the process that we go through and not just the cognitive. Don't neglect that step. Ask the Spirit to illuminate you. Ask him to guide you into truth. If we leave this step out, it will all become about the cognitive. It will all become about learning stuff. We'll be gaining lots of information about God rather than entering into a deeper relationship with God. The fourth pointer is don't forget to apply it. Don't forget to apply it. Again, really basic stuff. But the original, the original authors wrote to the original readers because they wanted them to respond in some way. So always ask yourself two questions. How did the original author want the original reader to apply this stuff in their own life? How was it meant to guide them? The second question is, God, how can I apply this in my life today? Perhaps God wants to show you stuff about himself. Maybe he wants you to go down a particular path. Maybe he wants to show you more of his story. Maybe he wants to show you more of how he loves you. Maybe he wants to show you more of how he wants you to love and love, for your, love your neighbours or be kind to those around you. But don't forget to apply it. If reading and meditating on scripture doesn't lead us to being changed and transformed, again, we're just learning stuff about God but we're not drawing closer to God. And finally, why even bother with any of this stuff? Why even bother reading biblical narratives? When you remember, in amongst all of this detail, in amongst all of this detail, God's word is for all of us. God's word is not just to some of us. It's not just to scholars and pastors, people who have been Christians for 25 years. It's God's word to all of us. God wants to reveal himself to all of us. He wants us to read it, meditate on it, and base our lives on this. The scriptures were authored thousands of years ago, and they tell us God's story, and it's a compelling story. And God invites you, and he invites me, into this story. In fact, he longs for us to become a part of redemption history. As we read the scriptures, we see God's story, and it's a story that continues to unfold. So why read it? Because God wants you to be a part of redemption history. He wants this to become a part of your life story. He wants you to experience what it means to be somebody who's been redeemed, somebody who's been reconciled. He wants you to get to know the divine author of, of Scripture himself. And he wants you to find your place in his story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even though it was, it was written so many thousands of years ago, it's still real, it's still vibrant, it's still true. Lord, thank you for your story. Thank you that you invite each one of us to be a part of that story, to, to be people who are ourselves a part of your redemption history. Lord, I pray that as we try and get out our shovels this week and as we try and dig, that you would help us to dig deep, that you would help us to process that stuff that we read, that you would help us to understand it, that you'd help us to apply it. And more than that, Lord, that you would help us as a result of this process to grow deeper in you. 
that you would help us to draw closer to the author of this story, to the divine author himself. Lord, for those of us that need extra motivation or help or assistance, we ask that your spirit might come and provide us with that motivation, with that assistance. Lord, and we all ask for wisdom. We all ask that your spirit might guide us, that he might lead us, and he might show us that unique part of the story that he wants us to be involved and engaged in. Amen.